0: Well, we are Davis inspired me in the Old Testament. We are not uh, it is wonderful to in the church calendar celebrate Pentecost. We are going to be in the book of exodus, we'll be in the book of Exodus, and uh, we'll be focusing most of our time in Exodus. Exodus 17, but a bit of prefatory reading, beginning in Exodus 3.16, Exodus 3.16, and then as we finish this passage, we'll go and, and talk about what we're going to talk about, read the Exodus 17 together, and, and um, hear Lessons from that that the Lord can use in our lives. Exodus 3.16 Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Havites and the Jebusites. A land flowing And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. I'm not going to go further, but I will say that the next thing is the cloak and the leprosy. But the cloak doesn't make a lot more appearances. In myth, as a kid, I loved both The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the coolest parts of both of those book series is the, the receiving of magical gifts. The receipt of magical gifts makes you feel, as a kid, like, what if I had something like that? I think, and, and I'm trying to remember, if I can get into the mind frame of me in 1987 or 1988, you know, I certainly wanted a bow that would, that would never miss. I think if I could have had a magic basketball, that was even before Space Jam came out, but I'd already thought to myself, if, if God saw fit to grant me a basketball that just found its way in, no matter what, that would be really ideal. Magical gifts were something that really appealed to me in my mind, and so when they were granted, I always took note of it. And magical gifts, things that have magic properties, is not how God works. It's not how God works on earth. It's not what God did in this story. But as we go to Exodus chapter 17... Exodus chapter 17, we'll we'll see that there may be a belief from Moses, who's who's growing in his understanding of who God is, who's growing in his understanding of how to lead. Moses has a rod. Uh, Also, rods were ubiquitous in that time period. I say that because they're not now. Sandra, you have a nice cane, and that's lovely. It's not, it's not something that you would use probably to smite a lion if it attacked. Rods were used by shepherds, Moses' profession for a long period of time, and rods were very well known, and rods continue to be used in the Bible a lot, referenced a lot, spoken of a lot by other shepherds, and Rod's even in the idea of church discipline and the church protecting the flock of sheep from wolves. But Rod seems a bit strange to us. If someone, you'd think that maybe they were hearkening back to Tolkien and wanted to be Gandalf or something. If you saw someone walking around, good morning, good to see you at church, and they're holding a large rod in their hand, we would think that that person was very strange in our culture. Rods were a very normal part of their culture. And the rod that has now had quite a history by the time we get to 17 was not made of gold. It wasn't fashioned in some special way from some special wood. It's the rod that was normal, common, wooden, regular, that he was using as a shepherd when God said, what is that in your hand? Which is why we started in chapter three. Water from the rock. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. So. There's a bunch here. There's a bunch in, in Exodus 17. Um, but the, to give you an idea of where we are, Israel has now escaped the Egyptians, very recently escaped the Egyptians, and they have not yet begun. <clears throat> They're not deeply into their wandering in the desert. They'll be wandering for almost 40 more years from where they are here before they reach the promised land. In Exodus chapter 3, God's already told Moses the peoples who they're going to fight and subdue in the promised land, the peoples who are occupying the land that Israel will take. And the peoples who he lists in chapter 3 doesn't include the Amalekites. It doesn't include Amalek. They're not mentioned at all. They're not there. They're not there because they were not a people group who were city builders and occupiers of anything. The Amalekites, from all of the information we have, all of the historical record, everything we know about them, were essentially, and they're referenced in other places in the Bible. They were a nomadic people, and it appears that they kind of set up camp around the best place around for water and grazing, and it was the only place around. And they're described in other places as ambushers. So they waited, and they, they attacked the stragglers in the party. They were kind of the bandit group of people Uh, they weren't farming they weren't producing they were just waiting like bandits to attack people who had weakness God's anger burned at the Amalekites and he said your name will be blotted off the face of the earth biblical archaeology is really fascinating we have a friend in Israel um, who I'm assured is not watching this but if he was I meet. we're praying for you and we love you Um, he um, came to believe that Jesus is who he said he is because of biblical archaeology, which as a field growing up in Israel as a secular Jew uh, was mocked and maligned. They said biblical archaeology is a field of dreamers, people who are ridiculous. We have true archaeology that's scientific where we do things like say, everything in this strata is this old because of this rock. And we know how old this rock is because of this thing next to it, that we're also saying is this old. The circular logic of archaeology and geology fascinated me growing up. But in biblical archaeology, guess how many different inscriptions, um, guess how many important uh, monuments are left mentioning the leadership or the functioning of the governance or the city structure of the Amalekites. There's nothing. There's nothing. They were wiped out. They were destroyed. They come back. They attack a few more times. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Ehud story, the, the king of Moab, the Moabite king, has, has allied himself with the Amalekites. But this people group in the southern area, kind of below Canaan, really, um, end up just getting totally wiped off the face of the earth. The, the thing from the water from the rock that's, that's important to know in the whole scope of biblical history is that this is two times that God is going to provide for his people with water from the rock. And this time, Moses is despairing, and then the Lord said to Moses pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, this staff, which he's carrying, you saw uh, in... Chapter four. What is this in your hand? He throws it down. It becomes a snake. That serpent, and this is a really cool story when you're a kid. The serpent staff that he has. When the Egyptians use their magic and turn their staffs into serpents too, his snake, serp- his snake is bigger and stronger than theirs, and eats theirs. <laughs> Satan has some power. He can certainly deceive. He can certainly do things that are actually supernatural. But his power is a destructive power. He's not a creator. And God's power is so much greater. And so then the staff is also an instrument that God uses with turning the Nile's water into blood, infesting the land with frogs and vermin in, in chapter 8. Um, then Moses also wields the staff as plague seven and eight, hail and locust. Um, and then even getting across The Nile, the staff has a role. The staff is involved. Um, And now God has told him to strike the rock with the staff. Every single time that the staff shows up in the text from the first time we see it, when God says, what's in your hand? Until this, God tells Moses and Aaron what to do with the staff and they obey him. Also note that Moses here is told by God to take with you some of the elders of Israel. A lot of churches have gotten in trouble with a CEO pastor model that is not found anywhere in the Bible. And further that this passage, the lessons from it, I think would point away from doing it. I will say that... uh, Some of my dear friends by personality are very grateful to have a plurality of elder leadership because they think it's wonderful to have us all working together and I'm a consensus builder and I like to facilitate discussion by personality, by inclination in my flesh I despise plurality outer leadership and I'm exactly the kind of person who would get in trouble with a CEO pastor model because I think it's much faster and much easier for me to make the decisions and tell everyone what they are. I'll pray, you know, hope, you know, I'm I'm looking to the Lord to lead, but if there's a decision to be made, the fastest thing is for me to make it. It's not a biblical model of church leadership. It's not a God-honoring model of church leadership. And even And not from my father or my uncle or some of, if you're wondering, is he talking about them? No, I'm not. But I have heard this passage preached by people who use it to justify CEO-pastor type leadership and say, so when you are the general, when you are the one who the Lord has used to point everyone else to him, you need people around you in supporting roles. You need people next to you who agree with you and help you. Do what you've said. This is what we're doing. I don't think that that's a healthy picture of what we're supposed to get. And Jethro is spoken of approvingly, his advice in the next chapter, right after this, that I promise we're really going to focus on as our main thing. But Jethro says to him, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statute of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. Now this passage... Exodus 17, I think, warns us about putting our faith in a man as the arbiter between God and man. And in how devastating it is when our faith is in a man when that guy inevitably fails. Which, if one person is the face, the leader, there are dear brothers in Christ one of whom I, I, is like one of my favorite current preachers and teachers, whose ministry is their name and whatever else. Okay? It is not sinful or wrong to have your name involved in your ministry. But, guys, when tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are looking to you instead of looking to Jesus, you're doing ministry wrong. When people are focused on you instead of Jesus, It's not the way that the Bible teaches us that biblical leadership is supposed to happen. Uh, Well, uh, this was a particular time and place, um, and uh, don't you think that if someone was, for instance, the king of Israel, they would have a different kind of leadership than a servant leader on county commission? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Unequivocally, yes. Absolutely. But when people use this passage to say, When you really think about people lifting up the hands, I want you to understand, Sarah, that you're always supposed to be in charge of the nursery and don't grumble like the Israelites. That's not what this is talking about. And leading by yourself is not what God has called us to do. None of us are supposed to try to take on that type of leadership. So Moses strikes the stone with the staff in obedience to God. I'm remembering something else about stones. Almost 40 years later, at the end of the wandering in the wilderness, the people are again grumbling. There's another rock. And God says, speak to the rock and it will give water. And Moses says, I got this cool staff. This is the, the God, remember this one? This is your staff. It's a special staff. Everybody stares at the staff when I go around. People like the staff. The staff's an important symbol. And he hits the rock and no water comes out. And he goes, oh man, well, I mean, I don't know. I am getting older and more frail. I guess I'll try again. And he hits the rock a second time. And then the water comes out. Oh God, everything worked out. Look, I struck the rock twice. And God says, no, you didn't obey me. You didn't hear my voice. You did this in your own strength. And you didn't do what I told you to do. And you will not see the promised land. Striking the rock here is supposed to be a picture of Christ. And Moses walks in obedience the first time and fails to obey God the second time in part because Moses is trusting in Moses and maybe Moses and his staff instead of obeying God and doing what God has told him to do. Also, one of the reasons uh, this is now going to be like a, let me talk to you about the history of people. But one of the reasons that that this gets screwed up, that Moses uses as an excuse, is also why throughout church history, people have done the same thing over and over and over again. Well, you know, I just wanted to preach Christ crucified, but people didn't get it. So I instead, when the most popular mayor of our town died, decided that we would make their bones special and start to carry them around. Church history is full of idolatry, of people, because people love idols. Who loves idols? The Israelites? Uh, Yes. Who loves idols? The people who go to conferences that cost $200 to meet their idol for the weekend? Yes. Idolatry is strong in all of us. It's a pull, it's a sinful pull towards something that says, reading the Bible is hard, the priest, the believer, ah, that, that makes sense in theory, but I'd really like somebody just to tell me what the truth is. And there's, we always have to be very careful to guard against that. And again, to not put up a person or an object even an object that is used by God as the veneration. We don't worship the creation, we worship the creator. So he has this special rod. It's a rod has God used this rod or not used this rod? God's used it powerfully. Just just from the standpoint of it being really cool, really neat, it's amazing. I mean, this is not exactly the same thing but the pool of idolatry. Guys, if if I, we were at the Highland Games, we saw these different tents. Someone had a replica Highland sword. Uh, uh, replicas don't really do anything for me. If someone said this two-handed sword was used by William Wallace when he was fighting the English, I mean, I don't think I'd like prostrate myself before it, but oh, whoa, this sword, What? Wh- wow, oh man. Do you think I could touch it? Do I, can I put a glove on and touch it? Would that be okay? <laughs> Objects that have been used by powerful people have an impact on us years, hundreds, thousands of years later as we're connected to history, as we're thinking about what things represent. What this staff should have represented to the people is that God rescued you from Egypt, that God provides for your needs, that God cares for you. And what I'm going to say, and it's not controversial in the sense that, um, you know, well, Clayton really enjoys stirring up controversy. It's controversial in the sense that I haven't seen any Bible scholars who I respect teach this. And they may have. I may have just missed it. But um, the question that I want us to think about is, did God tell Moses? Did God tell Moses to raise his staff? Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now Moses at this point is about how old? Do we know? Yep. And he buzzed in quickly. We got good, got good participation. That is correct. He's around 80 years old. Aaron at 83 years old. Joshua, we don't know exactly how old. Probably between 30 and 40. But there's going to be a war. Now, who in the entire group probably has the most knowledge of how to think strategically about battle? It's kind of a trick question. Moses. Moses does. Well, why would I say that? He's raised by rich Egyptians. The Israelites are slaves. They don't have movies teaching them, you know, this is, and these are some of the great battles of history. You can picture yourself as a general. They weren't playing video games and, and trying to learn how to disperse their troops. They weren't thinking about leadership in that way. They haven't had a battle. They haven't had a war in their lifetime. They do not know how to fight. Uh-oh, uh, people are attacking us. Uh. What are we What are we going to do? Moses, even working as a shepherd, like the, his father-in-law, who's going to show up in the next chapter and give him good advice, he at least knows how to fight wild animals, but also right. If shepherds, they had to protect flocks, there were people that they had to fight. They know how to fight bandits. They spend some time thinking about it. They know what to do. High ground's better than low ground, all of these things. The people have no clue, but also Moses in his eighties lead from the front. If you have courage, Moses says, I, I think I actually, this is probably smarter leading from the front. Does God tell Moses to lead from the front and he disobeys? Absolutely not. Does God tell Moses go up on that mountain and stand up there and hold the staff up? And I'm going to miraculously win this battle for you. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, how did Joshua choose? We don't know. Later, when God gives explicit instructions as to how to choose for Gideon's army, for instance... We see that God has a purpose and plan that goes against all military knowledge and against all military ways of doing things. Uh, This is still too many people for what? For it to be a miracle when you win the battle. Oh, but I mean, isn't this also kind of like special forces and kind of irregular and using fear and confusion? Uh, Yeah, it is kind of like that. But ultimately, God did something that militarily doesn't make sense. He made the army too small to win so that he could show it's my power that is doing this. I am the one who is winning this. So, Moses is on top of the hill, and whenever his hands are up, they're winning. Whenever his hands are down, they're losing. Okay. Well, I mean, doesn't that point to, like, it's certainly somehow miraculous, isn't it? I mean, like, it's a God thing. Like, his hands go up, and it's like, Isn't it tied somewhat? It's gotta be. There's some kind of miracle here. This is something supernatural. Let me just submit that it's possible that it's not. And the reason I say that is, God did not tell him, raise the staff up and you'll win. Every time in Scripture, prior to this, that the staff is used, God commands them to do something. This time he doesn't. He doesn't tell him to do this. Joshua did as Moses told him, fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. If it's not supernatural, then how in the world does it have to, what does it have to do with his hands? What does it have to do with his arms? Well, the answer for that is fairly simple and tied to battles all through history, even in non-Christian cultures. It has to do with the power of belief and the power of symbols. What did the the staff symbolize to them? We're going to win. God said, we got power. We got strength. Uh Uh-oh, where'd it go? Have you guys heard of standard bearers before? This is, Kevin DeYoung notes this, and, and he's pretty scholarly. I'll trust him on that. This is the first time that God says, write this down in scripture. 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, thou utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. But this battle that the bad guys are coming against them. Moses builds an altar and calls it, the Lord is my banner. Now, some commentators have said, and there are subsequent battles in the Old Testament that absolutely are pictures of when you're praying, you're winning. And when you're not praying, you're losing. Man, that's so powerful spiritually. We're in spiritual battles every day, put on the armor of God. But it's not necessarily... Even in this passage, okay, there's, there's a whole big fight raging of whether or not he's praying when his arms are up. I don't know if he's praying when his arms are up. You know something he's pointing to almost certainly that we don't get from speculation we get from the passage? The words used here, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner, why did banners and standards matter in ancient warfare? A huge part of it was that people believed that leaders and sometimes religious symbols gave them strength. And that's why they would win. There are so many examples. Anyone who likes military history at all will tell you. When a standard bearer falls, the army routes. They just run off. Or someone will hold up the bones of St. Vasile, whatever I made that one up. I don't think it's real. Probably is real actually, because it's a pretty common name for Orthodox somewhere. But the bones of Saint Vasile, and then that fell, and oh, now we're going to lose, and people freak out and they run away. As long as we have that, we're going to win. If you have the guys, what's the other symbol you guys see in tons of myth? If you hold up this object and you and you're the rightful wielder of this, then you're going to win all your battles. The sword. There's always some magic sword. If you find the right sword and hold it up, this is the symbol. Guys, what I want to submit here is that there's no magical object, that the the staff itself is not magic, it's a shepherd's staff that just happened to be the one he carried at the time when God asked him about it. And that their belief absolutely impacted whether or not they're attacking with ferocity or cowering in fear. But that all that was actually required was walking in obedience to God? Well, why do they need symbols? Because in their frailty, they had a very limited understanding of God. They were idolatrous people and they turned away from God in a moment. Not only did they not worship God the way they were supposed to, what were they desperate to do? They were desperate to follow the leadership of someone and... The leadership of someone who would give them powerful, magical symbols. Later on here, as soon as Moses is gone with God up in the mountain, what do the people do? Who's there holding his arms up? Aaron and her. Now, guys, I mean, maybe I shouldn't tell you this. You'll think less of me. Dave is a biblical scholar who I'm sure would say, I can tell you the lineage of her. He does appear in another time. I thought, I love that movie, ben Her. <laughs> Who's this her guy? What? Her is him, preferred pronoun. Sorry, little, little joke. But uh, her is here in this part. And then where does her go? Jewish scholarship, traditional Jewish scholarship actually says two things that aren't here. I mean, I, I'm not saying these were certainty because they're not biblically, you know, true, capital T, true. This is just what their their scholarship says. There's a lot of extra biblical texts in Jewish tradition that are from the Old Testament. Is what I'm saying makes sense? This is, this is agreed history, but it's not biblical truth. Is that he was um, married into the family so that this is, Moses' brother-in-law, basically, he's married in. And then the second thing that's agreed in tradition and history is that he gets killed. Seems like it would have been an important story. He gets killed by the people, which is why Aaron chickens out and makes the golden calf. I'd never heard of that until preparing for the sermon. But it's not from, you know... Some guy in the 70s. It's, it's ancient um, historical tradition around who her was and what happened is that he they, the people demanded a golden calf. Her said no. And then the people killed him. And then Aaron said, sounds good. Let's get a calf going. How about a calf? Anybody else want a calf over here? So Here's the thing when Moses says to so t- tie that also to Moses saying people are looking kind of murderous. They don't have water and uh, I, I'm se- hearing grumbling. Guys in the history of leadership, by the way, <laughs> I just want to say I love you and our church. So, you know, there's some grumbling sometimes. I've never feared that you were going to rise up and murder me. Oh, Lord, I can't bear this burden. People were complaining. They didn't like the drink options at the fellowship dinner. And I fear that they might kill me. No. I mean, another part of the the CEO pastor thing where people are like, and and I need help. I need people to raise my arms. It's like, God, (laughs) no, this is Moses in real, realistic fear of being murdered because people hate leaders that much. In our heart, everyone has rebellion. Have you guys worked in different kinds of jobs? Gabino, do you think sometimes the people working under you complain about you? Even with family, it can happen. But every job I have ever worked, the thing that people had in common is they all complained about the boss. And then I became the boss and thought, that's that's too bad. I think I'm not being paranoid to say people are probably complaining about me. That fits in with all of my time I've observed everything pizza, construction, every job I've ever worked. People complain about the boss, okay? So Moses is the boss, people are complaining about him, and he begins to rely on two things he shouldn't rely on himself and magical objects, powerful objects. The power of objects wielded to demonstrate authority. Guys, in America, we should, as good citizens, be respectful of certain things, including the flag and understanding freedom and that people died to preserve our freedoms. We should be respectful of the office of president. We should be respectful of other political leaders. Political leaders we like, political leaders we don't like, we should be respectful. What we should never, ever, ever do is worship objects. Years and years ago, I was watching on the news. My law firm at the time was defending a judge who had placed the Ten Commandments. Sound familiar to Exodus? It's about to come up. The Ten Commandments in Alabama at a courthouse. And now the police are there and they're removing the 10 commandments. And this guy runs over and says, get your hands off my God. And I thought, that's so depressing. I actually think that it, at first I thought it was a misstatement, but I've thought of it a lot over the years. I don't think it was a misstatement. I think you could distill down that guy's basic problems with the fact that he was worshiping objects guys again i am for respecting the flag i am deeply against burning the flag i'm for caring for the flag but there are christians i know who have demonstrated in their response to people protesting and things like that that they worship the flag and that's not okay Another thing that happens, I mean, I remember watching this. Someone dropped a Bible, and I saw three people who were like, ah, oh, No! Now, should we treat holy things as separate and, and treat them with respect? Yes. Would it be a good idea to be like, I'm gonna, oh, this is an old Bible, I'm gonna take a camp and start some fires with it? No, that would not be appropriate. That would not be okay. But should we worship the Bible? The book. I'm saying, should we worship the physical object of the Bible? No. It's fine to wear a cross as a symbol to remind us of what Jesus did for us. But have you ever known somebody who seemed like they were moving past that to something magical? I bequeath you this cross. All the other people in my family who have ever held it have died of old age. So it must prevent you from dying of accident. Through the years, guys, magical symbols, magical things have held such appeal to people because worshiping God in spirit and truth is about obeying him and it doesn't come with training wheels. It doesn't come with with things to comfort you. It doesn't come with talismans. That's not promised to us. What's given to us is better. It's the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the armor of God that we're to put on. In this story, when Israel is defeating the Amalekites, by the way, this is the only military victory that they win in the whole Pentateuch. Is that because they peaked at that? Well, this is them. We don't know how to fight militarily, but there's a lot of us versus people who are trying to attack and ambush their stragglers, but who aren't. I mean, they're not the, the giants, they're not the people of, you know, Gath. They're not the people where it's like, gosh, this would take a miracle to win. It's more like, yeah, you beat those nomads back. Uh-oh, they should never have attacked you. Now God's promised to wipe them out from the face of the earth, men, women, and children. And all of their animals are to be released so that no one can say, this is in the Bible, so that no one can say, that cow was owned by the Amalekites. That sheep was, used to be an Amalekite sheep. Nope, we don't talk about the Amalekites. The Amalekites don't exist. Another Jewish tradition is that Haman, remember from the Esther story, that he's one of the last Amalekites. That's why he has the ancient enmity against the Jews and wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. When Jews tell the story of Esther, whenever someone says the name Haman, people, ah, they hiss, so you don't hear his name, because saying the name of the Amalekites, no, we're not doing that anymore. Three times in the Old Testament, it says the Amalekites are not, they're, they're done, They're destroyed. They'll be wiped out. And they were. But God protecting his people is here not clearly, not clearly accomplished by miraculous or supernatural means. Did the water come out from the rock? Because, you know, there was just a a special little place where there was some sand and God had told Moses. And when he poked, it, it's kind of like the things in Texas with the oil coming out of the ground. You know, it was just ready. No. That's not. So so <laughs> leading question was striking the rock and water coming out a miracle. Yes. Yes, it was a miracle. And was there an object involved in the miracle? Yep. And was this object involved in a ton of miracles? It sure was. But the object wasn't magic. The object was an ordinary thing that God used to show his power. I mean, guys, do we, do we you know, currently, like, I'm, I'm, I'm scouring the world for a descendant of Balaam's donkey, and I found some whose braids are remarkably close to language, but I'm still looking for the talking one. That would be insane. In a world where Balaam's donkey is a magic donkey, like a Narnia animal, and, and there's just some that God made that have that magic power, That would be kind of cool. I found a talking donkey over in Jordan. I bought him off the guy. The guy was an idiot. Now he's a YouTube star. I made way more than I paid for him. No, these are ordinary things that God does miracles through. In the same way, all the things in our lives around us that God brings and uses, the loaves and the fishes and the feeding of the 5,000, we're not like, oh, I think that those are magic fish. They're the magic fish that just copy themselves. Self-cloning fish. After they're cooked, they even clone the frying. God does miracles, but he doesn't use magic objects. He doesn't leave us with special talisman we need to access. He doesn't do it so that objects are things that we rely on in life. In fact, he does it in the opposite way. So that the only one who gets the praise, the only one who gets the glory, the only one who gets the credit is him. Now, is the traditional interpretation still valuable to say, sometimes you need to take a seat when it's too hard to stand? Yes. Is it also good to have people lift up your arms? Yes. Should we examine ourselves and say, Do I need someone to help me raise my arms? Yes. And especially if God's told you to do something. If God's told you to do something and you are finding it beyond your strength, then ask someone to help you. Ask people, plural, to help you. Don't try to lift burdens on your own and say, well, it's just me and God. Me and God and my magical thing that I rely on that's not another person Objects don't matter, guys. Well, Clayton, you haven't seen this object. This car right here. I'm telling you not as someone who's like, I don't care about all the things of the world. They will all burn and pass away. I've never cared about a thing. I could see a Barrett 50 caliber rifle and start to just have to kill the idolatry in my heart. Uh Don't worship. No, that is not an object of worship. Just a gorgeous machine that can stop a vehicle from a mile away a single bullet okay i understand the impulse to think that objects are really important but they're not god tells us they're not what is important who are we supposed to be investing in who are we supposed to be relying on people around us to support us but whose power is on display when anything good is accomplished god's god's And so God using people who he's transformed to come alongside us as we do the work he's called us to do is a picture of what Lonsdale Community Church is and what Lonsdale Community Church should be. And for all of us, we can say, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. It is fine to remember times of faithfulness, Oh, Lord, this this car that is really old and that seems like it shouldn't be running anymore, but you've kept it going. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. That's fine. Don't worship your car. Don't worship your car. And when we are not able to do what we believe God has called us to do. We need to recognize that none of us can do things alone. None of us can do things on our own we also need to recognize sometimes when someone else is walking in obedience that we are not the star of the show. Biblically, none of us are the star of the show. None of us. But we are not the star of the show when it comes to doing actions for God. It is he alone who deserves praise. It is he alone who is worthy. It is he alone who should be magnified and lifted up. And we should be falling into the background. But imagine now that you're her. You're her and you didn't get to be in charge. You assisted. And then you get murdered for doing the right thing. And you also don't get to see the promised land cuz you got murdered. Way before that, wandering even. Now, again, that's historical speculation. It's not biblical truth. But we do know that her is not the star of the story. We know that Moses is not the star of the story. And we know that the object to strike the rock is not the star of the story. All of that is pointing to, is there an object that people are looking to in the Old Testament to save? Yep, remember the snake, the plague of snakes, and then there's an object that is lifted up and they look upon it. But what is that supposed to be precursor? What is that supposed to be pointing toward? It's supposed to be pointing to Jesus, the author and Perfector of our faith, The one who we look to, the one who we hold high. And so unlike Moses, who lived before then, who couldn't say it, we can say the Lord is my standard and Jesus is my hope. And our lives should be focused on raising him high. Physical battles are not things that most of us will be participating in. But there are spiritual battles every single day. And it is not by might or by power, but by his spirit that all the work we're called to accomplish will be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to live in us, to set us free from condemnation. To set us free from the chains that bound us, the slavery to sin that we experienced. We thank you for the new life we have now. We want to live pointing others to you. And Lord, when we see people who are weary, who are worn out, raising you high. Help us to come alongside them and hold them up. Hold up their arms. Many of us, Lord, find it difficult, if not impossible, to say, I need help. I need help. Our culture is entirely too self-sufficient, and people are breaking down without ever even asking anyone to come alongside them. For those of us who are too proud to ask for help, give us humility and help us to ask for help. But help us as well to take delight in the opportunities that we have to come alongside, to lift up the arms, knowing that Moses is not the star of this story, that his staff is not the star of the story, but that you, God, alone are the star of all of the story of your creation and the redemption of your people. Help us to lift your name on high and help us to support all of those who are doing that as we move forward this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.